Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, Senior Pastor at Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through His Word. Philippians chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 14. In this passage, which is really a continuation of what we were talking about last week, Paul expresses gratitude to the Philippian church, uh, remembering that you know, he sent a, they sent Epaphroditus to him, not only to check on Paul's well-being, but with a financial gift. Not only that, Paul in this particular passage is really rejoicing in the fact that despite his circumstances, he is still content, and he's content due to Christ's strength in his life. And we'll unpack what that means as we go on this morning. Really the big idea behind today's study is this, that contentment in Christ is a generous gift to us that glorifies God. So if you have the place there in Philippians chapter 4, let's read verses 10 through 14 together, and then we'll really dive in. Paul says in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, because once again you renewed your care for me. You were, in fact, concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. Let me ask you a question this morning, believer. Are you a contented person? Are you satisfied with your situation in life? Now, if you are, then you possess great treasure. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, that godliness with contentment is great gain. But sadly, we live in a whole world full of discontented people. Years ago, there was a newspaper cartoon showing two fields divided by a fence. Both fields were about the same size. Both had plenty of the same kind of grass, green and lush. And in each field, there was a mule. Now, each mule had stuck his head through the fence and was eating grass from the other mule's pasture. In spite of their own plentiful grass, to the mules, the grass in the other pasture seemed greener or, or fresher somehow, although it was much harder to get to. And in the process, these two mules actually got their heads caught in the wires and were unable to free themselves. And there was a one-word caption at the bottom of the cartoon. It simply said this, discontent. Folks, we live in a whole world full of people who, rather than living lives of gratitude, are really fence pokers. You see, they've, they've never learned that secret of satisfaction. But the Apostle Paul knew, 
In fact, in verse 12 there, he says, I have learned the secret. More literally translated from the Greek, he's saying, I have been initiated into the mysteries. Paul is telling these believers in Philippi and us that he possesses the secrets of satisfied saints. You ready for them? Secret number one, rejoice in your supply. Look at verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. Okay, so we rejoice in our supply. How do we do that? Well, first of all, we have to resolve to be satisfied. You see, you make the conscious choice to be satisfied with what you have. In that passage in 1 Timothy 6, uh, Paul talking to Timothy also said in verses 7 and 8 that we brought nothing into the world, we take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. And really the point is that we should resolve to be happy and thankful with what we do have instead of lamenting the things that we don't. Here's something else. Remember that God knows. Remember that God knows your every need. Paul, of course, had needs. Now, sometimes we forget that. I mean, when we think of Paul, you know, super Christian, missionary journeyman, world's greatest evangelist, sometimes we forget that he had all the same human needs that you and I have. Paul coughed, he sneezed, he ached, he scratched, he yawned. Paul got tired and cold and hungry and sick like the rest of us, but God knew Paul's needs and he knows your needs, emotional needs, spiritual needs, and yes, even your material needs. God knows. You'll recall that Jesus told his listeners in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, that the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So God knows our needs. But when we ask them, ask him to, to fill those needs, to meet those needs in his power, in his wisdom, in his sovereignty, sometimes he's going to supply those needs in special ways. I mean, first of all, God may send it directly. Now, a couple of Wednesdays back in our midweek Bible study, we were in 1 Kings chapter 17, where we found that Israel was in a time of drought. And we find God feeding the prophet Elijah with food that was brought to him by ravens. Okay, not exactly the menu you would expect from like DoorDash or Grubhub or Uber Eats, but it was pretty spectacular. Ravens bringing him food. And then later in the chapter, Elijah encounters the widow of Zarephath and he asks her for bread. Now she and her son are on the verge of starvation. All they have left is one, just a little tiny bit of oil and flour to make one last meal before they themselves die. But she meets Elijah's request. She decides to trust in the Lord. And lo and behold, if not only did she have enough to feed all three of them, she had enough flour and oil to last through the, the entirety of the drought, three and a half years. And so, you know, if God chooses, he can provide in mysterious, even supernatural ways. But more often than not, 
God may choose to meet our needs through others. And that's exactly what he did for Paul by sending Epaphroditus to him from Philippi with a love gift from the Philippians. It had been a little over a decade since Paul had visited them last, but they still wanted to help with Paul's needs. Verse 10 says they just lacked the opportunity. But when the time came, it says they once again renewed their care. Now, in the original text that renewed, it means it bloomed again. I mean, like flowers in the spring after a long, hard, cold winter. And, and so what really prompted this, this blossom of generosity? Well, God did. I mean, they became aware of the need, but God laid Paul on their hearts, and so they acted. Now, you may recall what Paul told the Galatian believers in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, that as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. So when God lays something on your heart, do it. I mean, when God provides you the opportunity to do good, take it. Because God loves to use his people to be his hands and feet in this world, to be the mechanism through which he blesses others and provides needs. I remember a time, this, well, quite a while back now, many years ago, my cousin Lisa and her husband Dennis had fallen on hard times. They were struggling financially. He'd been laid off uh, from his job as a diesel mechanic with J.B. Hunt Trucking. And they had a, an insurance bill for $137 that had come due. And they had no means to pay this bill, none whatsoever. And as they teetered on the verge of seeing their insurance policy lapse, a ring came at the front door. And they opened it to discover a man who, knowing absolutely nothing of their predicament, greeted them by saying, I don't know why, but the Lord prompted me to give you this. And he handed them an envelope and then he politely excused himself. And when they tore it open, they found exactly $137. Our gracious God had not forgotten them. He had used a faithful servant who was willing to respond to what God had laid on his heart. And so we resolve to be satisfied with what we have. We remember that God knows our needs. Here's something else. We rejoice in God's provision. So regardless of what God provides and when he chooses to provide it, we rejoice in it. That command was at the very heart of that passage we looked at last week when we were studying verses 1 through 9. Remember, twice in verse 4, Paul says, Rejoice! I'm going to say it again. Rejoice always. Told the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 5 to give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you. Now, for grammar nerds, give thanks, it's, it's in the present active imperative, second person plural. What does that mean? And it means something. I, I'm getting there. Present active means it's an ongoing command. That means it's something that's meant to be done daily. Imperative mood means it's a command, not a request, not a suggestion. It's a command. And second person plural, well, in good Arklatex grammar, that just means all y'all. He's saying all y'all every day give thanks for everything. 
coming downstairs one morning, Lord Congleton, who was a 19th century British uh, Secretary of War, he heard his cook exclaim, oh, if only I had five pounds, wouldn't I be content? So thinking the matter over, and anxious to see the woman satisfied, he shortly thereafter handed her a five pound note. Now, when you adjust that for 2024 currency, that's about 650 pounds. And she thanked him, but he paused outside the door to hear if she would express her satisfaction and, and actually thank God. And as soon as her shadow was invisible, she cried out, as soon as his shadow rather was invisible, she cried out, Oh, if only I had 10 pounds. <laughs> you see, instead of mourning what we lack, let's praise him, thank him for what we have, rejoice in your supply. Now, as we move on to verses 11 and 12, Paul shows us a second secret to satisfaction, and that's to rest in your situation. Look at verse 11. I don't say this out of need. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with a little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. Now, the fact that Paul says he is content, okay, that says a lot given the difficulty of being unjustly imprisoned by the Romans. And yet we hear no complaint from Paul. In fact, as we saw in last week's study, there was not even a hint of worry. He is satisfied. But what about us? What are some of the obstacles to contentment in our culture today? Things that we come up against. Well, you know, we're constantly seeing advertisements for all sorts of feel-good opportunities, as if our feelings are actually the greatest good in life. Or uh, our culture's emphasis on the importance of accumulating stuff, having all the right stuff, as if having stuff is the greatest good in life. You know, or, or maybe our culture's emphasis on entertainment. Oh, it's all about having fun. Y'all have fun. It's all about fun. At least, it, it's funny what the world defines as fun. If we're not having it, they expect us to be discontent, as if fun is somehow the greatest good. And of course, we struggle with the, the drive to, to, to be the best, to, to have more, to be the richest, to, to keep up with the Joneses. And so those are all things that we combat every day. But remember what the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money. He didn't say money's bad. Keep your life free from the love of money and be satisfied with what you have. For God himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. Or as the psalmist said in Psalm 116, 7, return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. But to better understand what being content is, at least according to Paul, we need to understand what being content is not. I mean, contentment, for example, is not self-satisfaction. Okay, now before we, we flesh that out, you need to understand something. 
You and I as Christians, we should never settle for anything less than our best effort. I think that's why Paul told the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 9.24, don't you know in a race all the runners run? But only one receives the prize, so run in such a way as to win the prize. In other words, give it your best effort. And so it's possible for Christians to pursue excellence without, excuse me, excellence without being self-serving. I mean, think of it this way. Why be satisfied to work in the mailroom when you can be the CEO? You know, to make C's when you have the ability to make straight A's, to ride the bench when you can be an all-American, or to be an average Christian when you could be a world changer for God. You see, excellence is a Christian virtue as long as we're finding our satisfaction in Him, not in ourselves, not in our own efforts. As Paul told the church in Colossae in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people. Or like the old hymn says, I am satisfied with Jesus. So contentment is found in the Lord, not in self-satisfaction, in His glory, not in our own accolades. Also, here's something contentment is not. Contentment is not self-sufficiency, okay? Contentment doesn't come from, from unlocking your inner power. <laughs> That's what the Scientologists waving around their copies of L. Ron Hubbard's Dynetics will tell you. That's the exact uh, same kind of, uh, of pop psychology fluff that you're going to hear from popular motivational speakers and, and, and some of those, those smile and be happy preachers. I'm, I'm serious. You know, some some modern spiritual leaders have taken a, a portion of a simple proverb, it's Proverbs 23, 7, for as a man thinks in his heart, so is he, and they've blown it up into this, this whole philosophy that says, you can do anything you want if you put your mind to it. Really, anything. I can run faster than a speeding lo locomotive. Now that's Superman. I can leap tall buildings and simple. No, that's, that's Superman too. No, seriously, the secret to unlocking your dreams is within you. And even spiritual leaders like Norman Vincent Peale and, and, and later on Robert Schuller and more recently Joel Osteen, all these spiritual leaders have made a critical mistake. They have removed the power of Christ from the contentment equation. And, and you know what? That's nothing new. You see, the, the word that Paul uses here in the original text for content, the Greek word autarkes, it, it's a word that Paul actually borrowed from the Stoic philosophers, and then he kind of turned it on its ear. You see, according to Stoicism, a person should find sufficiency in himself for all things, should be able by the power of his own will to be able to overcome any circumstance. And so a Stoic believed that he had need of nothing or no one. So he didn't need God. He didn't need the Bible. He didn't need the church. But you see, for a Christian, contentment is not self-satisfaction. It's not self-sufficiency. You know what it is? It is self-surrender. 
It's making your declaration of dependence on God. It's relinquishing control of your life to God's Holy Spirit and letting Him lead. And so Paul has taken this word autarkes and he's made it a Christian word that's really more accurately defined as to have everything needed within. Now, unlike those Stoics, Paul is self-sufficient only through the power of the Lord living in and through him. And that's why he would write in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Now, that's not reality just for Paul only. I mean, it's the same with us today, Christians, because everything we need is within us. It's just that it doesn't come from us. Because His Holy Spirit dwells within us, we have endless resources. It's like uh, Jesus told the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well in John chapter 4, a well of water springing up for us to eternal life. But, you know, to unlock those resources, to unlock that wellspring of life, we surrender control of our lives to Him. And that propels us down that path toward contentment. Now, understand this about self-surrender. Self-surrender actually allows us to accept our circumstances. So that when adversity comes, and believe me, it will come, all right? If you've never experienced it, just brace yourself, because it's coming. But when it comes, we should never run from it. Now, why is that? Because it's in the darkness of adversity that Jesus Christ shines the brightest. I mean, we, we have a God who not only goes through the darkest valleys with us, He's the one carrying us. And it's in those adverse circumstances that we are drawn into a deeper, more intimate, more dependent relationship. We learn more about His goodness, about His trustworthiness, and He uses those circumstances to shape us, to mold us, to strengthen us, to give us wisdom, to make us more like Jesus, and in the process, to bring glory to His own name. But if we'll accept our circumstances, guess what? Then we can appropriate our circumstances. What do I mean by that? We make the most of every opportunity. We redeem the time, as Paul said in Ephesians 5. I mean that every event, every circumstance in life now becomes an opportunity to make Jesus known. I mean, just as back in chapter 1, we saw Paul using his imprisonment to spread the gospel throughout the Roman imperial guard. You see, whenever the world, whenever life squeezes you, whatever comes out, that's what's real. So when you're facing adversity, what's the testimony that you're giving to the people who are watching you? And believe me, people are watching you. Is it that your life is a testimony to God's goodness, His, His faithfulness? Is the world seeing contentment under pressure? 
If so, you are blessed. Because as Paul said, godliness with contentment is great gain. And so the secret to being satisfied as saints is to rejoice in your supply, rest in your situation. Here's the third secret. Realize your strength. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, what did Paul mean there? To fully unpack what Paul is saying here, you have to understand the language that's being used here, okay? Because it's not the language of pessimism. Paul is not saying, I can't. Oh, but we hear I can't being spoken all the time, every day. I mean, even in some of our churches, naysayers, oh, we can't do that. Surely that won't work. That program is doomed to fail. This won't grow the church. That's too weak. We can't pull that off. You know what that is? That's what we call a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because if you're going to think that way, then yes, you are doomed to fail from the get-go. You'll never get anything done. If Christians are so faith-impaired that they won't witness, they won't pray, they won't worship, they won't serve, you know what? We're all going to be speaking can't. And speaking can't is a surefire way to destroy a church. Paul's strength is not expressed in the language of pessimism, and it's not expressed in the language of presumption. Note that Paul is not saying, I can. Because speaking I can says, I'm in the driver's seat. My way or the highway, I call the shots, baby. I can run my own life. And you know what? I can run yours too. I don't need God, don't need the church, I don't need the Bible. I am the captain of my own soul, the master of my destiny. <sighs> okay, so if you're speaking, I can, you know what you've done? You have taken Christ out of the word Christian. And when you take Christ out of Christian, what do you have left? I-A-N, which according to Jesus means I am nothing. Remember John chapter 15, he talked about us abiding in him. And that if we abide in him, we will bear much fruit. But then he says in verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so the language that Paul is speaking here in verse 13 is the language of power. I am able through him, Paul says. That's the language of power. Through him, who strengthens me. Now, the, the Greek there, it means to pour power into. So Christ is infusing me with his strength, strength to resist temptation, grace for every trouble, power for all of the tasks that he places before me. And let me tell you, Christians, that is not a boring, humdrum sort of existence. That is dynamic faith in action. Okay, but what does Paul mean when he says all things? Does that mean I can jump off the church dome and not be injured? <laughs> Lift a car with one hand, stop a speeding train, pass the bar exam without studying? Now, John Mark knows you can't do that. You, no, it ain't going to happen. You know, a lot of athletes love to quote Philippians 4.13 as inspiration, but you know what? No matter how many times I quote this verse, I still can't dunk a basketball. 
So what is he saying? You see, that phrase, all things, has to be interpreted in context. In fact, that's one of the major overarching principles in biblical interpretation. Context, interpreting in context, reading the scripture in context. So Paul is saying that he can accomplish whatever the Lord has called him to do because God will supply Paul with the power to do it. But the specific context from which he is speaking, well, that includes verse 12 and, and his statement about contentment, about material needs. I am able to do all these things through him who strengthens me. What things? Well, to figure that out, you got to couple those two verses together. He's basically saying, I am able to be content and to make do in surplus or in lack because of Christ's strength flowing through me. We have a power source available to us to accomplish whatever God puts before us, whatever he's calling us to, to be content in any situation. But are we really connected to that power source? Herbert Jackson went to the mission field. He was assigned a car that wouldn't start. Not without a good push and a clutch pop. Now, if you grew up driving a standard, you know what I'm talking about. He pondered the problem, devised a plan. Occasionally, he would borrow some of the students from the local school to give them a push start. Or as he ran errands, he would park on a hill so he could just let the car roll and pop the clutch. Or he'd just leave the car running. And for two years, he did this until his replacement arrived. And he, he proudly explained his, his clever procedure to the newcomer, who in turn said, Dr. Jackson, you've got a loose cable. And he popped the hood, tightened the cable, turned the ignition, and the car roared to life. A loose connection had kept him from putting the power to work. You see, Christian, God has a power source that enables us to stand, to endure, to be content in all circumstances. Paul said in, a, in Ephesians 1.19, I pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for those who believe him. What is that power? It's the power of Christ living through you. But how secure is your connection? See, Paul was content in doing whatever God asked of him, any situation, because of the strength that Christ provided. And so this then is really the biggest, the biggest secret of all when it comes to being a satisfied saint. That Jesus is enough. All right, it's not Jesus plus this equals contentment. Or Jesus plus that equals contentment. It's Jesus plus nothing equals contentment. And so if you're discontented with your career, with your, your marriage, your family life, your neighbors, the church, I mean, ask yourselves what things you are attaching to Jesus to try to find satisfaction. Paul knew that he was, he was in God's hands, so he wasn't preoccupied with his situation. 
Paul was preoccupied with Jesus. Jesus was enough. And when you focus on Jesus, you can be satisfied too. You see, Jesus is the one who gives us the power to face adversity. Jesus is the one who gives us the power to respond in faith. Jesus gives us the power to enjoy contentment regardless of our circumstances. But do you have a loose connection to that power source? Are there some adjustments, Christian, that you need to make in, in, in your life because you're not fully tapping into that power? Now, if you are already connected to Jesus, what are some things that you can do? Ways that you can learn to better walk in contentment with your own situation. Can I offer you a few pointers? Pointer number one, look within. Now, when I say look within, I mean very specifically look for greed. Greed is not an easily detectable sin. So do some self-examination. Take a hard look at your own life. Pray to God as you're looking through your bank statement and ask him, am I trusting in money more than I'm trusting in Jesus? Do money and possessions bring me more joy than Jesus does? And what other things am I longing for more than Jesus? So we look within. We do some self-examination. Then we look without. Specifically, we look for need. What need can you meet in the church or in your neighborhood? You see, we're really, really good at pointing out needs or pointing out problems. We're not always so good about stepping up to be the solution to that problem. It's really easy to talk to somebody else about the problem than it is to actually jump in and, and start fixing it. To see a need and work to supply that need. To be a part of the solution. So we look for an opportunity to meet a need, to solve a problem, to bless others, to be a partner in the gospel. So we look within, we look without, then we look around. We look for people that we can team up with. Because we can accomplish so much more for the kingdom of God when we partner together with other believers. So let's team up. Find a way to regularly support and invest in the ministry to change lives, to share the gospel. Now, I want to take just a minute to talk to those of you who've never experienced the power of Christ personally. What about you? You see, God desires to do amazing and wonderful things through you. Paul said in Ephesians 3.20 that God is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we can ask or even think. Now, that's not going to happen if you're not connected to the power source. In other words, if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ. 
and we can fix that today. You can know Him right now. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short, and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you. And you receive, by faith, God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. For more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.